I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Jeremiah Grossman. Jeremiah is the CEO of BitDiscovery, and Jeremiah's career spans nearly 20 years and has lived a literal lifetime in computer security to become one of the industry's biggest names. Since Jeremiah earned a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, the media has also described him as the embodiment of convergence of IT and physical security. In 2001, Jeremiah founded White Hat Security, which today has one of the largest professional hacking armies on the planet. Jeremiah has also received a number of industry awards, been publicly thanked by Microsoft, Mozilla, Google, Facebook, and many others for privately informing them of weaknesses in their systems, essentially a polite way of saying hacking them. In this episode, we discuss RSA 2018, starting an infosec, web application vulnerabilities, what to look for in application security developers, building security development metrics, why you need to have inventory of websites, making time to contribute to the community, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Jeremiah, thank you for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing very good. Thanks for having me, Doug. Well, great. Now, you're you're one actually the second person. I had uh, Rob Emley on post-RSA. So you're going to be technically the second post-RSA guest from uh, 2018. So it kind of begs the question of what was it like this year, and was there anything valuable, or was it vendor noise and... Uh, basically taking down an entire American city for, of uh, cybersecurity professionals for a week? You know, I don't spend much time physically at RSA or on the show floor. Um, usually what RSA is for me, and I expect a lot of others as well, is there's, there was something like between thirty-five and 50,000 people there and lots of people we know. So it ends up being, for me, just lots of one-on-one conversations and chats, who's doing what, what interesting things are happening. Because I can get a lot of the presentation content, you know, recorded or elsewhere. So for me, it's it's a good time just to interact with people in, in the community that we exist. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it's it's funny, you know, and I was kind of talk to some other people about it. It's you know, it's it's easy to rag on a RSA or Black Hat at times because they're they're they are loud and noisy, but you have to kind of go into I think measuring expectations. You know, it's not going to be a schmoocon or you know some of the like a B sides. This is it's, a, it's meant to be a much larger conference. So you have to kind of go in and you know, get what you want out of it. It's, it's our industry's comdex. It's, it's not going to be like the deep tech stuff that you go to, you know, like a, a black hat for, or a DEF CON for, this is an industry one where we try to see, you know, who's making pitching, doing what. And for me, that's, there's a lot of value there. It's, it's not always fun for everybody and at least everything, but I get a lot out of it. And so kind of stepping back and looking at your, your career, uh, so how did you kind of get to where you are? I mean, what was your background in, in becoming kind of a hacker and technologist? <laughs> uh, I've told a lot of times, actually, but uh, I didn't choose InfoSec. As I like to say, it chose me. Um, I first got into InfoSec quite by accident um, when I was about 19 or 20. Um, I was a Solaris 
Unix administrator way back, uh, way, way back when. And a lot of people have different, you know, hobbies and things they do at night. I always liked web technology, developing web apps. And this is like 90, 98, 99. And, uh, I took it upon myself to find some vulnerabilities in Yahoo Mail way back when, and back when they only had 120 million users and Yahoo was the darling website that everybody loved. And uh, I've reported a couple of vulnerabilities in Yahoo Mail where I could break into my own accounts and anybody else's if I so chose, and I reported it. And uh, this is well before, like this is in the heyday of full disclosure, bug bounty programs didn't really exist. Um, it was very much the wild, wild west. And uh, they responded and said, thank you very much. They were very gracious about it. And uh, as I reported more issues to them and started a dialogue, um, they asked me to come up for an interview. And later they uh, offered me a job. So uh, that was my, how I got my first job in InfoSec. And uh, now today when we have bug bounty programs by the hundreds all over the place, I see a lot more people following that same path, finding some vulnerabilities here and there, practicing and then demonstrating their skills to a would-be employer and, and people break into the industry that way. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny. I mean, I think everybody that's – it's worth this weird tipping point now where there is that options of doing things that are a little bit more in the up and up or there is a there is a program, period. It's not just kind of scanning the internet and hope you break something. Uh, so I think there's – do you see that people entering the industry now have a little bit of an easier step into it or is there still some of the same challenges that you know we all faced 10, 15 years ago? Uh, I don't know if it's easier or harder, um, but I think there's different cha there's different challenges. I guess I would say you know before the, most every website had a, a cross site scripting vulnerability you can find in 30 seconds. So in that way, it was a lot easier. Not everybody knew what cross site scripting was, so the way to find vulnerabilities was much much easier. Um, today's uh, website hacks are far harder than they were, so we've made a lot of progress. But at the same time. There's a big need for application security talent out there. So if you know your way around code, if you know software security, you're going to get a job. Way back when, those jobs really didn't exist. I mean, the term application security or web security didn't come really into like the mid-2000s. And, and do you see that, you know, kind of changing now? I mean, there's with so much of it more now being with, let's say the word cloud thrown around. Uh, there's a lot that kind of goes behind that, but there seems to be more applications and more software writing in the web. Has that changed it where we were just looking at, you know, maybe smaller websites or web apps where now it's literally entire infrastructures or exchange or everything else that's online. Yeah. The, the web kind of abstracted everything, all code. And uh, we used to work with web servers. We don't even work with web servers anymore. Everything's everything's containerized and Dockerized, so we don't even see the infrastructure below. But I guess that's the way of technology. We try to abstract all the things that are ugly um, and aren't necessary to deal with all the time. That's why we have virtualization, so we don't have to deal with everything below it. So, uh, but yeah, everything went the web. Even even mobile apps are basically mini web apps. That's just the way it is. Yeah. And I guess a lot of what you're seeing now, and you can be kind of, you know, tracing some of these vulnerabilities over over time, are a lot of the same vulnerabilities in ex existence? Is there the same problems? Are they getting fixed? You know, kind of where are we in the overall web architecture security? You know, I remember it distinctly. Uh, SQL injection was first, the, the original paper by Rainforest Puppy was December 25th, 1998. And 
millions of websites had those vulnerabilities. Millions of websites had them exploited. But now on the average website, it seems to be diminishing. I think the latest stats is only somewhere between 1% and 5% of websites have actually one of these reported issues. So the classes of attacks are never really going to go away. SQL injection is not going to go away. Cross-site scripting is not going to go away. But what's important to see is their decline. How much harder is it to find these issues over time? And fortunately, it's gotten a lot harder. And do you think we've gotten that much better with web application security in general? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The framework's helped out a lot. Um, we had a lot of awareness on what cross-site scripting is, SQL injection is, and about the 50 other classes. And then, you know, we for the legacy stuff, all the stuff before the frameworks uh, really helped out, um, we're going to have to do a very big find and fix process on the one-offs. But all the new code that was written, whether it's on Ruby on Rails, Node.js, and other things, it's not to say that they're perfect, they don't have vulnerability classes of their own, but they wiped out huge class of issues like cross-site request forgery and others. So the frameworks, I think, as far as the new code goes, really helped us out. Yeah, it seems to be a lot for lack of a better word, cleaner in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and it's it still seems to be to be a little bit though some of the legacy problems of just in general, when you look at the way applications are built, both on the web and others, is still trying to get that mentality to the developers to think about secure securing their development lifecycle. Are, are you starting to see that maybe get improved that they're starting to think about that from a project management base as opposed to an afterthought? Uh, yeah, and I, I think security... Those of us that work in security really needed that to happen. I mean, before, you know, 15 years ago, security to a system meant closing off the ports, firewall, everything, and patch. And that, you know, got you a pretty secure system, Unix system, Windows system, or whatever. But all of a sudden, the web came about, and firewalls really didn't work. Encryption and, like, SSL really didn't work. Um, <clears throat> patching, at the least the OS level, didn't really work. The only way to secure web apps was at the develop developer. And most of the security people out there really didn't know how to code, didn't know how to find these vulnerabilities that way. So it had to took, it, it really took nearly 20 years of awareness and training, not only for the InfoSec industry, but for the average developer. And that's really what we've been going after and why it's been so hard. But fortunately, now we're making headway. When I go to when I go to college campuses and I meet with a new computer science student or new programmers, they actually know the term cross-site scripting and SQL injection. So for me, who came out and I had to do uh, presentations and powerpoints for a decade to see that, it's a good feeling. Yeah, it is. It's good to like when they at least have a, some. Uh... I would say situational awareness about it. It's it's just a, it gets a feeling we're going in the right direction at this point. Um, but you know, with some of those, do you, do you see again? You know, we talked about some of the frameworks and some of the mentality. Are there other particular sets of skills that you would like to see developers have? You know, whether specific codes or or coding languages or approaches to what they do that can also improve security. Is there is there like some missing raw talents that we need to foster? I don't, you know, for the skills, I don't know at this point I would advocate for a new skill. Well, you know, whatever helps them be more productive and generate more secure code, I'm all for. But I think we're going to need something better in the ecosystem that realigns incentives. And what I mean by that is if you take the average development group or developer, are they incentivized to create more secure code? By and large, in the ecosystem, they're really not. And then on the flip side of that same coin, are they penalized or in some way 
Are they called out when they generate insecure code, you know, a vulnerability code? Not really. So without those two pressure points, it's going to be difficult for them to see why they should do these things other than it's just a good thing to do. Otherwise, it's just a lot of missionary work. So I'd like to see more measurement down to the developer level. Are they generating good code? Are they generating bad code? And better incentives for them to do, uh, do better. We all see all the time developers getting incentivized to push code to production. You know, are they productive, but not in a secure sense, security sense. So what's, you know, what are some of the metrics we can build in instead of how fast we can ship, but how fast we can ship something secure? I, I always like three metrics. <clears throat> Number of vulnerabilities over, over time, like how many and of what classes of attack they are. Vulnerabilities are going to happen. That's just a fact of life no matter what we do. Vulns are... You know, in many ways, just a bug. Um, and then the second metric I like rather than volume is time to fix and followed by remediation rates. And so we want to be able to fix all of the issues that we identify and do it quickly because that's the thing. What gets a company hacked isn't so much the fact that they had a vulnerability or even 10. It was that they, no one found it. They're exposed for weeks, even if they knew about it for weeks or months, or maybe they never got fixed. So if we actually improve upon our remediation comprehensiveness and speed, I think that's what we need more than anything else. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Now, let's shift a little bit about some of the stuff you're doing now. Now you've started with Sentinel-1. Talk to me a little bit about your role there and what, I guess, what problems you're trying to solve with Sentinel-1. Sure. So I, you know, I spent a little over 15 years at White Hat and doing web security, and it was really just to solve one particular problem. Websites had vulnerabilities. We just don't know where they were. So how do we find vulnerabilities in all websites at scale? So that was fun, uh, really fun uh, over 15 years. And then when I left, it was to, you know, a little bit of a change of pace, trying to challenge myself, learn a completely different space. And it became time to put up or shut up about all my, my thoughts uh, that I put online about the AV industry. So, uh, so when I joined Sentinel One, it was that opportunity presented itself. Ransomware was going to be a very big problem. I saw that coming. It just everything was lining up. Um, and so when I joined Sentinel One, it's you know to get on the endpoint to learn the antivirus industry, the endpoint protection industry, I should say, and help you know companies secure their endpoints. It was just that simple because we knew AV as a class wasn't working. We're just a lot of snake oil. And today, you know, I've, uh, I'm still an advisor to Sentinel One, but I recently left to start a new company called BitDiscovery. And BitDiscovery is meant to solve just one very seemingly simple problem: is that most organizations do not know even what websites they own. And this is a long-standing industry problem. So I'm, I'm hoping to solve that one and help every company out there uh, quickly create an asset inventory of their websites and start there. No, I think it's a great idea. It's funny. I, I kind of gone, I've been going through this with some of my, my internal team on our, even our own websites, because I said, you know, we're doing all this security hardening and doing some upgrades. I said, well, what about the websites? I'm like, oh, it's just a website. Why does it matter? And I'm like, well, who is records, DNS records? I can start going through the list of saying there's a lot out there that can be vulnerable. And a lot of organizations under think or underappreciate where the risks lie with their websites and what can really be out there. You cannot secure what you don't know you own. <laughs> so the, uh, one of the things I've been running into a lot, I've had uh, conversations with a little over 100 companies about this problem. And we see a lot of companies getting hacked. Like, you know, well, let's say we have Apache Struts issues or WordPress issues. And major companies get hacked. They get breached and they make headline news. And 
you know, the news will come out and they'll say they were negligent. They didn't patch. And that is true. But there's also something else underneath. So I, I started talking to them privately and going, why, why didn't you patch? Um, I saw, you know, because we have, you know, BitDiscovery has a good copy of the internet. We can see, well, they have these 500 websites or so. They patch that issue there, but not there. Why is that? So I have these conversations with them. And a lot of them said, you know, we would have patched that issue. Yeah, we didn't patch and that's bad, but we would have patched that issue if we knew that website existed in the first place. And then the light bulb went off. I would, our patch rates would in, increase. Our breaches will go down if everybody just had an asset inventory. Yeah, I've worked with a, a bunch of clients with that. And it's funny when we say, well, you know, we're doing some external scans. And do you know about these three sites? And like, oh, yeah, those were, you know, dev sites that we forgot about. But like, they still have some kind of authentication. There's something out there. And it, it is kind of scary to, that it's almost this abandoned car lot of websites that a lot of organizations have. <laughs> and especially when the marketing teams can swipe a credit card on some cloud provider, register a domain name, stand up a new service. And you have all those things all over the place. So it's a, it's a very difficult problem. Um, and uh, I, find those, I find those challenges attractive, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Yeah, and it seems it's it's an interesting problem too because it speaks to different areas of the organization. Uh, you know, often you don't think about bringing bringing the chief marketing officer in about security discussions. You know, to them it's oh, we just need to get this site up, and they can probably get it up with little IT oversight at times, and people kind of forget about it. So, how do you engage the right people organizationally to think about these particular set of problems? It's it's going to be incredibly difficult. You know, the first one is is just get an asset inventory up. And then, you know, that, and that's trivializing the process. It's going to take a little while. Um, I'm hoping to bring that a process that usually took weeks or months down to minutes. But let's say you had an asset inventory. And then it's a process of internally of trying to figure out who the responsible parties are. Who is the system administrator of these systems? Who is the, um, the database administrator? Who is the product manager? And once you, everybody can be assigned ownership, then all of a sudden, like, oh, they know what they own. And now we can have a conversation about who should do what to protect these systems. A lot of times it's just the marketing person, like the VP of marketing, didn't even know they owned it because the last VP of marketing or one of their uh, one of the people underneath them registered this site for some promotion. They left the company and it's now gone. So not even they know the systems that they own. So if we tell them, they'll get value from these things. Definitely. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I think there's that point of it, is, is adding value to it is saying, okay, if, if you have an asset, you know, what are you really doing with it? Are, are you making money off of this? Is it something that can be retired because it, it doesn't have any more value? So it seems to be more like you have to speak at the business level than the tech level with a lot of these folks. Uh, that's, that's always my mantra to the extent that we, we can. And that's going to be, that's, that right there is very difficult for the average security person. Um, they know bits, bytes, codes, networks, you know, the whole security process. But a lot of times they didn't come from the business side. So they don't know how to speak in terms of, of dollars, closure rates, you know, all the sales and marketing stuff that we like to rail on. But that's the language that they, that they speak. They don't speak ours. They're not going to come to us because they, we only represent more work to them. So if we start learning about their job, their business, and what turns them on, then uh, we're going to get a lot further. We have to go to them because, the, as I like to say, the cavalry is not coming. Definitely, yes. <laughs> it, it's, it's it's always that that challenge of getting the right people uh, in the room. So, you know, one of the things that we've seen, uh, or at least I've asked a lot of guests over time, is there seems to be the big issue too, but particularly with the tech 
people are they're really good at the bits and the bytes. But then when it comes down to communication, that communication seems to be the trend of the unrecognized skill that I don't think enough people in security have. Do you, one, feel that's an accurate uh, description? And two, how do we get people essentially communicating better? Uh, yeah, I would definitely agree. And But that's not only an InfoSec problem or an InfoSec practitioner's problem. That actually might be a world problem. We, you know, we have a really difficult time communicating with, you know, with people that are out, just even slightly outside of our bubble. And, you know, I once saw this, uh, this study about what people's greatest fears are. And public speaking was the first one on the list, followed by death. Right, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so... I had I have the same anxiety and the same fears. You know, 20 years ago, I couldn't talk to to anybody outside of a hacker type. But forcing myself to engage with them, learn about them, and do a lot a lot of listening rather than talking. And then when I felt I knew enough about a given subject, then I would put a presentation together and go on stage and really push myself. And so these skills can be gained just by really dedicating yourself to it, practicing listening, conversing, going to conferences in RSA. You don't have to sit in the presentation to learn. But if you do, go up to the speaker afterwards and engage with them. Um, take what you learned back to your to your management and your peers and teach to them what you've learned. And a lot of times it really just comes down to communication. It's just, it's just like anything else. Just practice it and, uh, and good things will come. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like I want a lot of those things that you just – you seem to have to get outside of your comfort zone every now and then uh, and kind of challenge you. It's, it's kind of really the only way you can you can kind of grow really in any skill set. Yes, it's just it's just practice. I mean, I've read a lot of books on public speaking, on communication, diction, and, you know, and uh, it's been helpful. And I think, you know, I let's 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 bring it down. Why should the average security practitioner learn how to present themselves, you know, publicly? Let's just bring it down to financial terms. You can be extremely good technical um, professional, you know, and somebody that's just really good. But if you put that next to somebody, somebody who is less good, but knows how to present and communicate themselves, they're going to get the job. They're going to have more influence. And if you really want to have uh, influence out there, if you really want to see the world go in the right way, the way that you think, you got to be able to, to articulate yourself in a way that's compelling. So, you know, kind of along some of those those thought lines. So you've obviously had technical skills, how to build some speaking skills and, and a certain level of business acumen. Where have you kind of learned some of those other skills? Was it, uh, you know, just on the job? Was there particular mentors? How did you kind of grow outside of just being the tech guy to being more of the business and other, other aspects of what you do? Sure. I, well, what, you know, whether I was CEO, CTO, advisor, board member, whatever, I was always practicing. I was always writing. I was always speaking. So I was in, in a fortunate position where I could blog a lot, so I practiced my writing and how to articulate myself with the written word. I would speak to a lot of people, you know, one on one, whether it was reporters, analysts, my peers. So I was, you know, always speaking and communicating a lot and trying to understand if they were what they were taking away uh, from me. If I was really articulating myself well, then I would do a ton of public speaking. I have over four hundred public presentations that I've given in my career, so that was uh, a lot of practice as well. And that's just really the way I go. I go about things. I just I grind it out and I practice and I practice and I practice. And even with my public presentations, I one of the things I always did was I would practice for a small group to build up my confidence to see how they felt before I took it on the road, so to speak. It would that was just my process and how to do it. 
and you certainly you've done other types of uh, contributing, such as writing and you know books and stuff. I mean, how how do you kind of balance the time to do all that so you can you can get it out, you know, get the material out there to kind of the the public? Oh, that's a good question. So I think I you know I could, we could go into like how I prioritize my time, but I think a lot of it is you know the things that I that we don't do. You know, look at your day split it out and you know how, how you invest your time here and there do you spend it all on Twitter do you spend it on email uh, do you spend it on the phone and try to figure out all the things that you can take away that really don't serve your purpose that really don't provide as much value and then substitute things back in so I you know I I cho- always chose to live very close to work so I got rid of my commute time <laughs> so I could you know, save those times um, I would cut my meetings down for an hour meetings and I would force I would force myself and everybody else that I was meeting with to get it down to 30 and have an agenda to get rid of the wasteful meetings. So if you can start figuring out how to get rid of the obvious wasted time, you'll have a lot more time for more productive activities. Yeah, and it seems to kind of resonate across the board, you know, with the the big problem that we always hear in security that there's just not enough people to handle all the problems. But say, I don't know, I always see a lot of inefficiencies along those lines, too, that if we just applied ourselves in the right area and we're more focused, we can probably solve a lot, you know, shore up some of that gap of what's needed. And that's a really important point. Yeah, like I mentioned a moment ago, the cavalry is not coming. We're going to have far more systems. You know, there was always this. There's always this ratio between security experts and the amount of systems or software that we're protecting, and that ratio is going to just explode. You know, we're not going to double ourselves. We're not going to double the amount of infosec staff anytime soon, but we will double and triple the amount of things that we're expected to protect. So we better get more efficient. We better get more automated. And for me, um, learning how to, you know. Being a software developer, you know, early on in my career really helped out because now I get to automate some of my more mundane tasks, you know, day to day, whatever it is. I know how to, you know, the things I'm doing over and over and over again, I can just figure out a way to code up, automate, streamline and get get more out of myself. Yeah, it's it's all about you know it's ultimately what I would try to tell people I mentor and work with and it's look this is your time, you need to make the best out of it and what you what you uh, get out of your investment. And we're not going to be able to protect all things at all times. So which ones do we do we go after? Which ones do we spend the majority of our time on? We better get, and we better get it right, otherwise a lot of people get hurt. And that's the fine and that's the interesting part about working in security that I I wish more people knew, is that. This industry here is, has some of the coolest people, most interesting problems, and it's really, really important. I mean, in, a many, in many respects, we're protecting moms, dads, brothers and sisters, you know, locally, domestically. And, you know, it's a tough. It's often we lose sight of that because our job at the end of the day is making sure nothing unexpected happens. And when and when we do our job well, everybody tries to figure out, well, what good are we doing here? We only see the bad news. We only see our collective mess ups. But you know what? If the if the were if the sun rises tomorrow and everybody's able to do business online, you know, it might be dumb luck, or we might be doing something right. <laughs> exactly. You know, one one of the one of the things I followed with you too, and I'm I'm always curious about how this relates to your your infosec career is, is your Brazilian Jiu Jitsu training. I, I had the opportunity to train a lot in the late '90s, uh, and I've kind of fallen off, and it's something I want to get back into. You know, life life and family gets in the way, but uh, how did you kind of pick that up, and and how have you stayed passionate in doing that? Uh, I like like all my my hobbies and interests. It was kind of by accident. I was uh, a really big UFC fan, like right when it started, when I was a young kid. 
And uh, I thought maybe one day I might want to take a cage fight. But everybody was learning this Brazilian jiu-jitsu thing. I, I have a striking background, you know, I grew up kickboxing, but I didn't know anything about this Brazilian jiu-jitsu thing, which was seen to be dominating the fight scene. So uh, myself and a co-worker, we showed up at a local academy to start learning. And uh, I took my first class, and if you've ever taken a jiu-jitsu class, you're, you're thrown in, you know, into sparring your very first day more often than not. And uh, my first training session was with a, a woman twice my age and half my size, and she's uh, proceeded to uh, kick the crap out of me is really what happened <laughs> over and over again. And uh, for some strange thing in my lizard brain, it, I, had to keep, I had to keep training, you know, to be able to improve myself because I couldn't let that be the end of it. But what I picked up over time is Brazilian jiu-jitsu ended up being human chess. It was, just, it was just me and whatever faculties I had against, against them. And it ended up being one of the most hardest and most rewarding things I've ever did in my life. Yeah, I got in shape. But it really came down to not size, not strength. It's who was better. And every day I could get 1% better until 10 years later I had a black belt and I could hold my own against most anybody I encountered. Yeah, it's funny. I, I look back in my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu days, and I think there was, a lot, there was a lot of interesting life lessons I learned about it, too. I thought the structure of it and kind of the, I would say, you know, non-philosophical philosophy that even kind of comes with it. But look, if you, if you yeah, you have to kind of jump in the first day, try it. You'll fail a lot. Uh, and we'd see a lot of people come from practitioners of other martial arts and think they know it all and then get tapped on their first day and they just were almost beside themselves. And it's kind of always brought me back to this thing of like, you need to kind of check your ego at the door. And I kind of find that in security as well as you're, there's always going to be somebody else that's going to get you. I mean, you can never always be the best. You got to go out there and try and, and challenge yourself as opposed to just thinking you're going to beat everybody in the room. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I can't I think I tapped consistently to a stranglehold every day for like two straight years before I got anybody. That was just my life. You know, I went through days, I got a blue belt and a purple belt. And I remember one day just like, I'm going to throw away my purple belt. I am so horrible at this. And it's just, you go through that suffering and that misery and you just keep showing up and you keep showing up. And one thing I learned in this life is that, you know, you don't have to be the strongest. You don't have to be the smartest. The person who wins is the person who just, no matter what, consistently shows up, win or lose. They'll lose and they'll lose and they'll lose and they'll lose and they'll keep coming. And that's the person you have to be the most afraid of because they're not going to stop. They're just going to keep coming. And what happens over time is they're, they're going to get you eventually and they're going to go right by you and you're never going to see them again. Yeah, definitely. There was there was some quote that I saw recently too. It's like, you know, when you're not when you're not practicing, somebody else out there is and that the day you meet them, you know, they're going to beat you. I think it's more of a uh, you know, uh, a, a more cohesive quote than I just gave it, but it's always a thing. It's you got to get out there. And I said it's the same thing a little bit in uh in infosec. It's like there's there's nights, there's weekends when people are saying, "Well, geez, how can I learn this?" I'm like, "You got to got to put the time in." And just whether it's mat time or keyboard time, it's there's no other better way to learn. It's, it's so right. I mean, I, I remember, I can't tell you how many, uh, you know, all-nighters I pulled trying to hack a system, you know, going after it and going after it, trying to find a weakness, trying to find a flaw, trying to exploit something over, reading a book, reading, pick up a new language, reading all about a system so I can win and being, you know, rebuffed over and over and over again. And then finally, you find a doorway and you find a way and you create something clever. And there's so many parallels between Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and hacking. And maybe it was just that hard and maybe that's why I took to it. 
And, uh, you know, what was interesting is that uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's, it's an injury-prone sport. You're going to get black eyes. You're going to get bloody noses and things like that. And so uh, since I was doing a lot of public speaking, you know, uh, I'd have to show up to a, a public speaking event or a customer meeting with a black guy and have to explain myself. <laughs> so, um, and that really, that actually had, I had to start blogging and uh, doing social media about it just, you know, so people knew what I was into. And I guess after I did that, uh, I guess it inspired others to pick up training. And now there's, if you look across InfoSec, there's a ton of people who train now. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's, it's good. It's always one of those fun things that you can, uh, you know, relate to people on that's, you realize that, yeah, the, the, the other people in the industry are, have other hobbies besides just the technology and it's fun to connect with people. It's, it's right in the matrix, you know, the every hacker's favorite movie. You'd never truly know someone until you fight them. Exactly. <laughs> well, Jeremy, so where, where, uh, where can people find you these days? Kind of post RSA, where are you on the interwebs and what are some of your upcoming speaking engagements? Sure. Um, on Twitter, I'm Jeremiah G. Um, I don't use uh, Facebook or LinkedIn so much. I prefer Twitter. It just kind of suits me. I'm the founder and CEO of BitDiscovery. So you can get to that at bitdiscovery.com. And I think the next speaking event I'll be at, uh, I, don't, I don't think I'll be speaking, but you can find me at probably Black Hat and coming up in uh, oh first week of August. So I always have a lot of fun there. So if anybody wants to come up, say hi, uh, share a drink. I'm all right. Awesome. Well, I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes, and I uh, greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Doug, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Sure, bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com, where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.